I admire your courage, Miss... Uh... Trench. Sylvia Trench. I admire your luck, Mr... Bond. James Bond. Everybody and welcome to Shaken Not Stirred, our episode on Doctor No. This is Russ and John tonight. Hello, Russell. Hi. I guess it's going to be Russ and John pretty much every time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, why not? <laughs> <laughs> um, if in case you haven't listened to our zero episode, I I highly encourage you to go and do that. But talk about the impetus of the podcast and what we plan on doing and just kind of a general layout and talk about Bond in general. But uh, just to recap quickly, John and I are both uh, fans of crazy Blu-ray sets. The Bond 50 Blu-ray set came out a little over a year ago, and I finally caught up to the current times and picked it up over Christmas. So we thought, you know, what the hell, let's just uh, do a podcast on every Bond movie in order from the beginning and uh, talk about what makes a Bond movie a Bond movie. And if by the end of this thing, we could figure out what the uh, what we feel is the greatest Bond movie of all time based on a bunch of criteria. Uh, so this ought to be fun. I'm, I'm, I'm now that we're actually starting, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to taking this on. Absolutely. And you know, we both have a couple years to kill. Exactly. So let's do it. Dr. No. And, and again, uh, one last thing I, I think we should mention going in, you know, Russ has seen many of these movies a number of times and it will be my first time seeing most of them. Uh, I've seen Dr. No twice now, once when I first got the set and once for this podcast. <laughs> so that's awesome. I think, you know, I'll have a lot of questions that you'll probably be able to answer and uh, it'll be fun that way. You know, like I, I, I watched this and wondered, oh, I wonder if they ever follow up on that again, you know, down the road and, and you'll probably be able to answer that stuff. So two different perspectives. Yeah, which is always good. So. I guess I'll do a little bit of uh, numbers. We'll talk a little bit about the history of the movie itself uh, and the and the property in general. So, uh, Cubby Bercali and Harry Saltzman obtained the Bond license. Um, actually, Saltzman's the one that obtained the Bond license. Bercali was looking to make some movies. The two of them kind of teamed up and formed this holding company that had the rights. And they actually had all the rights to everything that was written except Casino Royale. And I think I think we may have talked about this a little bit in the last episode. Um, so they decided to make Doctor No the first the first movie, um, and it was really done on a, sh a shoestring budget. It's kind of uh, funny that I, even though it was 1962 when when this movie was actually shot and released, uh, it was only made for a million bucks. So a million bucks at that time. Uh, is there any way to equate like how cheap that is? Like a million dollars for a movie in 1962 is like, just not a lot of money. That's the best we could probably do. I'm, <laughs> I'm yeah, fine I mean, with that. Yeah. I mean, I think it would be probably equivalent to like, let's put a little bit of perspective. So in 1977, they made Star Wars for Lucas made it for like 11 million. And that was like crazy go nuts 10 year, you know, 10 or 15 years later. Um, 
and still on a kind of a shoestring budget given given what they had. Um, just in everything I've read and, and stuff I've looked up on, a million bucks for this kind of a movie uh, was pretty lean back then. I mean, it it when when I've 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 kind of listened to the commentaries and done some stuff, and they talk about like building this elaborate set and having like seventeen thousand dollars for this crazy elaborate set or. Uh, this other room that they did, it's, you know, the room when Strangways picks up, or not Strangways, when the, when the doctor picks up the tarantula. Yes. Like, the reason that set is so bare is because the guy had, like, two grand to build that set. So just really shoestring budget. And it wasn't, when they started, when the studio started seeing the dailies and, and they, they saw how how well it was coming along, they actually offered to kick another hundred grand in to do the ending sequence. So, like, when the when the when the facility blows up and they have all the the model work and and everything and all the 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 explosions and all that kind of stuff that was pretty much based on the fact that they were really happy with the movie and if it if it wasn't for that um well a there probably wouldn't have been any more movies but uh that that ending sequence would have been probably a lot of like either a matte painting or some sort of rear projection thing or something like that right so it's pretty uh pretty crazy back then and it because it was a huge gamble i mean this this was an unknown property uh there weren't that many books even written back then there were there were several that were written um but it wasn't like you know now where where you know we all all of the works are done or a lot of times you know, like with the hunger games like all the books are written and then they start making the movie um this was very much not the case back then right one thing i really liked about this movie is um and it kind of ties into what you were just saying about how it's not how they do movies now you know this is not the james bond origin story this is not james bond year one uh there are a few scenes you know off the top of my head um the whole talk about the beretta yes you know he wants to use the beretta they want to give him the the other gun and and the whole thing basically alludes to bond's history you know, in the service and how he's not, you know, the guy that actually tows the company line all the time. Even the, and this is going to sound strange, but I thought the scene with Money Penny was like magic on the, <laughs> on yeah. film. Yeah. You know, it's like you just know they have this history. You know, they're playing beautifully off each other. And at first I thought, okay, this is going to be like, um, you know what? The best way I can explain it is if you watch the new, uh, the BBC Sherlock series, right? Yep. There's the um, lab agent. That's probably not the, uh, maybe she's like a morgue. You know who I'm talking about, right? Right, right, right. right. And yeah. she's like, she's like the plain Jane who's totally in love with Sherlock and it's never going to happen because he's like this dashing dude that gets whatever woman he wants and everything. And I was sure when Bond walked into the office for the first time that that's the way they were going with Money Penny, and they yeah. totally are not. Like they have this game that they're playing, and you just like to me again, not knowing the full library of movies and what may happen in other movies. You know, it just seems like she she's on to him, and he plays along with her. Like they just have this different sort of relationship going. You know, I thought it was great. And and that stuff, filling in the gaps on your own without having a straight origin story is just like a total breath of fresh air. You know, like, I yeah. don't need to see how he became James Bond. 
yeah, I mean, it's really, it's really not important, uh, and it it, 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 you know, it slows things down. I, it, it, but it's funny because then we see things like Casino Royale and and even like Skyfall where they kind of reintroduce Money Penny, uh, and all that stuff is great. But but again, they just really kind of hit the ground running with this mo- with this movie, and and you weren't afraid to just kind of just drop you in, you know, as if you knew what was going on. Right. And I get, it, it's kind of funny. I, I think this is one of those where your perspective, I think comes in handy because I've seen these movies so many times and most of them I've seen out of order. I mean, as a kid, I, I can't even remember the first bond movie I saw. I think it may have been either Goldfinger or Thunderball or, or maybe even one of the Roger Moore movies. Uh, you know, but now that we're kind of starting, you know, at the beginning, and like you said, this is the first time you've seen this one. Uh, it's just something that I I never really picked up on when watching it. Right. A couple things too with this one, it kind of suffers from in a in a variety of ways from being the first. Um, you know, a lot of the things that we know of from Bond movies, the kind of big cold open sequence before the credits wasn't there. Uh, the the credit sequence them itself wasn't quite like we'll see moving forward um you know it doesn't have all the gadgets and the crazy cars and stuff like that uh like the other ones do and again i think a lot of it is budget i think a lot of it is just maybe not trying to throw too much at you at one time yeah i i think a a few times during this movie it was kind of fun when it happened you'd see a scene that you recognize and your brain automatically says, oh, that's just like in Austin Powers or, oh, that's just like in so-and-so when actually this is the blueprint for those movies. Yeah, exactly. You know, the whole casino thing. uh, I know they did that in Austin. And in Austin Powers, don't get me wrong, that's a straight parody of James Bond. But, you know, these themes have been used like so many times in in many other movies, but it's interesting how this is, you know, really the blueprint for this sort of spy movie. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and fairly risque. I mean, by today's standards, very tame. Uh, but for 1962, um, you know, pretty risque, you know, we got women, you know, walking around in nothing but a towel. We got women, you know, walking around in nothing but a man's, uh, dress shirt. You know, we've got, you know, people getting sprayed down, uh, on a conveyor belt, <laughs> a wet t-shirt contest. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting how uh, how they went about it. You know how they went about being risque. You know, it's just those you just get to see the kiss as they fade out, right? And then you know they're smoking a cigarette or getting dressed or out to dinner or or whatever is next, right? And and that's kind of the funny bit. Originally, they had cast Lois Maxwell, who plays Money Penny, as uh, as Eunice Gason's character of um, Sylvia Trench, and she thought it was a little too provocative. She wasn't really uh, down with with kind of being that risque, so she decided to take the Money Penny role, which, in retrospect, was probably a much better move because she was Money Penny up until, you know, I think I think it I think the last one I think. Um, I think it was either the Living Daylights or um, License to Kill. So she was like into the Timothy Dalton era before she, you know, cut out as as Money Penny. So she kind of got a long lasting gig out of the fact that she was, you know, didn't want to, you know, prance around in a towel. Right. 
And does and I could be totally wrong. We might edit this, or we might just go with the flow. Does Sylvia Trench show up again? Yes. Oh, yes. okay, she does. I I could have sworn that she was a character in more than one movie. Yeah, she she shows up in the next movie is uh, from Russia with Love. So she does show up in From Russia with Love. The original intent for her was to be um, Bond's girlfriend, like recurring girlfriend. Uh, in the books, I think she showed up in six of the books that she was she was there. I I've I've read a few of them, but but not many. But yeah, she she is kind of, and that's kind of where they were going with that. But I think, I think as as they really kind of played up Bond the philanderer, I think maybe that just kind of slowed things down, or always having to cut back to the girlfriend in London. You know, probably story wise, just didn't always make make a lot of sense. So, right, they kind of excised her pretty quick, which is unfortunate. Um, Striking woman. I mean, Eunice Gason is just a just an absolute knockout. Yeah, this is. Um, there are many a knockout in uh, in this film. One thing I did get a chuckle out of was uh, the character of Honey, who I guess officially her name is Honey Rider. Yes. And it immediately made me think of like this is like the Star Wars gag, right? Like you know, like the villains in Star Wars, like General Grievous, and, yeah. You know, Darth Sidious. So here we have Honey Rider, you know, and Slutty McPantsoff, you know, <laughs> like whatever. But it just made me chuckle her name. But uh, she's quite the looker. Oh yeah, Ursula Andress, the 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 quintessential Bond girl, as it were. Yeah, and it, it, was it her voice that they used? No. So this is the funny thing, and this is something I really, I guess because I never really paid much attention to it, but Ursula Andress, even to this day, has a very, very strong uh, Swiss-German accent. I mean, she's not, obviously, she's not from the UK, she's not from the US. So all of the female lines, except for um, Lois Maxwell's Money Penny and uh, and Zena Marshall's Miss Tarot, were dubbed by Sylvia Vandersill. Wow! Oh, the same the same person. Yes, that's, yes, that's interesting. Yeah, so the same woman that does um, that that does Sylvia Trench also does uh, does Honey Rider. So it was just kind of funny. I guess back then it was just a big deal. They were so paranoid about like people's accents and the way they talked and whether their voice was too high or too low. And I, I, I you know, it it seems so foreign, you know, nowadays. Uh, right, you know, for them to do. I think I think the only movie in recent memory I can remember them doing that was Haywire, where they dubbed over um, Gina Carano. Gina Carano's voice, yeah, and I, I guess it was um, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. I think no, it was. Um, oh, I can't remember the ladies. Oh, Laura San Giacomo uh, supposedly dubbed her voice, um, but it's just such an odd thing. I mean, I remember like as a kid watching like Hercules in New York, you know, the Schwarzenegger Hercules in New York. And it was sure. obviously dubbed. And then like anything that uh, Lou Ferrigno was in, I think he played either Hercules or in those, er in those early movies. And they, they always dubbed his voice, although he had a, a kind of a speech impediment due to his, his hearing loss. But, uh, um, but it, it just seems so antiquated of a thing, but, but it was a big deal. I mean, they did this, Apparently, like all through the '60s, all these Bond movies all had like various people dubbing other people's voices. So right, and, and it's like you said, they were, you know, it's funny that they were preoccupied with that, you know, but they were slapping women and they yeah <laughs> yeah, and you know, I, I Zena Marshall for Miss Tarot. I mean, I think that they were trying to make her Chinese with the yes. makeup. Yes, 
Yeah, she's you know? most, she's most certainly not Chinese. <laughs> right. And Quarrel is basically Jar Jar Banks. I mean, it's a, <laughs> it's a caricature of a of a character. Yeah. Um for a Jamaican man or or uh you know, something similar to that anyway. So it's just funny what they were hung up on and what they were just letting loose with, you know. Yeah, well same thing for Joseph Wiseman who plays Dr. No. I mean, he was supposed to be half Chinese and and you know, obviously it's it's almost kind of like um like Remo Williams, right? They got they got they got Joel Gray to play Chun and he is, you know, no more Chinese than I am and uh and that that's how they played it. So it's just kind of right. funny. Yeah. So the plot of this movie is pretty straightforward. It almost starts off like a murder mystery. You know, it, it's you know we typically think of Bond movies as like these grand schemes with these crazy villains and you know take over the world schemes. And it, this kind of devolved into that when we kind of got to the to the end game. But normally there's some hint that there's like this big thing going on up front. Um, we don't even see Doctor No until oh, the movie's almost over, um, which is kind of another Bond thing that happens quite often, where the villains don't actually show up immediately. You know, in in the beginning, it's it's not uncommon for a Bond villain to show up either halfway through the movie or three quarters, right, uh, of the movie either. But they kind of slowly reveal the layers. You know, right. like he gets to the airport and oh, there's a couple of guys. Oh, are these the bad guys? No, they're just the thugs. You know, the bottom level of the bad guys and. It sort of escalates slowly, and then of course we get uh, we get Jack Lord, Hawaii Five O's very own Jack Lord, to play Felix Leiter, which is kind of funny. Yeah, Fe- Felix Leiter is kind of one of those characters too that's just funny in the in the Bond mythos, uh, the movie mythos. Where I don't think I think maybe once he was played by the same actor twice. I think maybe Jeffrey, not Jeffrey Rush, but um, the guy that played him in the in the Craig movies, Jeffrey. Jeffrey Wright, I'm sorry. Uh, I think maybe Jeffrey Wright is the only one that's played Felix Leiter twice. Uh, I think there may be one other instance, but every time it seems like they they need Felix Leiter to show up. It's almost like a joke where it's always a different guy that's playing him. Yeah. And I guess the deal with with Jack, they really wanted Jack Lord to kind of be the recurring Felix Leiter, but I guess he started to get more popular. I think this was right before Hawaii Five O. Um, hit, but apparently he wanted like a boatload of money to recur as Felix Leiter, and they were like, "Yeah, we'll just get somebody else." He had killer sunglasses in this movie. Yes, <laughs> gotta love the '60s. Uh yes. One thing that really stuck out to me uh, is this: like the original uh, Red Shirts movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are red shirts that die everywhere, starting, of course, with Quarrel. Yes. And and I mean if when you when you're paying attention to it, there's just red hats or red scarves or red, you know, like all the bad guys are basically flagged. Yeah. Speaking of that too, I wonder if this is where Marvel got you know the the whole aim, um, you know, helmet heads, uh, oh, bucket yeah. heads. Oh. Yeah. It has to be unless that is like an actual. You know, if that's what those radioactive suits actually looked like early on, you know, I, I guess uh, it Possible. could be. Yeah. yeah. But they seem kind of silly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny because you could even see in some of the, like when they're in the fight sequences and stuff, there's an elastic band, like on the up on the on the shirt part, that when they're moving around, it like rides up on them, so it's not yeah. even yeah. covering. Uh, and just that goofy, you know, plastic, clear plastic in the front with the little hole for the voice filter or whatever just 
And a, one guy had the inflated one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was even better. Uh, the other thing, too, is mo- it's funny with the releases of this. So th- this one released... So 2012 was the 50th anniversary of Bond, uh, and the movie actually premiered in, in the U.K., on October 4th of 62, but we didn't get it in the States uh, until May of 63, which, again, is is pretty common I, for the most part back in the day. You know, movies nowadays seem to be more like the, the, the really push the worldwide release. And I think that's all, even only in the last couple of years that that's really gotten big. Um, and a lot of it is just with the advent of the internet and piracy and everything else. If, if you if you release it everywhere at the same time and people have the opportunity to go see it, then they're less likely to to pirate it. Is the is the concept? But uh, but back 50 years ago wasn't as big of a deal. Uh, right. So it just it, and it's funny that over time the, these movies will kind of fluctuate as to which one premieres in the UK, which one first versus which one premieres in the US first. Sometimes it has to do with where most of it was shot. I know. Like a View to a Kill had the big premiere in San Francisco because it was a lot of it was shot there and and things like that. But uh, but yeah, so it was kind of weird because this one, like I said, launched in the U.S. in May of '63, and then From Russia with Love I think was November of '63 or October of '63. So like within six months, we had like two movies uh, released in the U.S. Do you know when this movie premiered? Were the books as big a sensation in the U.S. as the U.K.? Was it bigger there at that time? Uh, I don't believe so. I don't believe the books were that big. I know, I know President Kennedy was pretty fond of, of the series. Like, he was really big into, uh, into reading them and, and was really big. You know, when the movie, when the movie premiered, he was really, he was a, a big fan of it. Um, but I, I think it, it's one of those things where once the movie started getting popular, the books had a huge resurgence. I mean, once Dr. No released and then uh, the movie started getting more popular, the, the books sold exponentially more after the fact than they did before. And to this one, pri- primarily, you know, when you think about Bond movies, too, you think typically of like vast locations and a lot of different areas and and this one is pretty much we in the very beginning he's in he's in britain and then we cut to jamaica and that's pretty much it i mean he's he's there for the duration in jamaica um you know whereas we're used to some of the more modern ones and even the you know the later ones and again i think this a lot has to do with budget and popularity and everything else but you know bond became much more of a globetrotter uh through the 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 rest of the series as opposed to the beginning stuff so that that's another thing that kind of to me when i watched this really stuck stuck out is that you know that they just were pretty much on jamaica and that was that was all there was to it right i did i did like the lair you know once he got yeah once he got down in the underground lair it was just cool the way they you know the real heavy doors and that real you know it, it had the feeling of being deep um you know, underwater. Yeah. And uh, it did have some sort of fad, you know, 60s decor. Oh, yeah. Which is, uh, yeah, which is always funny. But, uh, yeah, I, I did like it down there. It had it had a good feeling. Like you said, the Dr. No was still so mysterious at that point in the movie. You know, you're just wondering what's going on. Yeah. And, and the uh, again, the plot is kind of... Silly may not be the the best word, but I mean it's just this concept of they've 
built this nuclear reactor to shoot this ray up at the Gemini uh, project to kind of disrupt the American space program and, yeah. you know, you know, <laughs> cause all this chaos. You know, that was that was kind of the, the impetus behind it. Um, kind of silly but but again they they it was kind of a slow build to it you know at first like i said they sent bond down to jamaica to uncover what happened to strangways and his um and his contact down there that the radio the lady that was a radio operator and it just kind of he kind of starts to uncover things and it uh, and then you know it goes from being you know really straightforward almost procedural murder mystery to you know guy trying to cause global chaos i i did find myself uh, in the scene, you know, in that uh, during the launch, in that scene where they're getting ready to, uh, you know, fire up the nuke and everything, I did find myself asking, like, "What are they doing again?" Yeah, you yeah, know, like what? <laughs> yeah, what exactly is the uh, is the purpose of this nuclear facility and everything? So uh, it did, yeah, it did change a little bit. The last quarter of the movie definitely changes gears. But the beautiful thing about it is it's all, even though the plot gets a little sketchy, it's so tight. Yes. You know, what are we talking about? An hour 30 total? No, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, pretty close. I mean, hour, hour 40, yeah. Right. So it really doesn't have a chance to stray too far off ever. You know, it's moving pretty quickly the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, it, it it very much so. I mean, and especially when you compare it to some of the later movies. I mean, even On Your Majesty's Secret Service was a long one. Skyfall was really long. Uh, Casino Royale was very long. I think Casino Royale is still the longest of of all the Bond movies, and then Skyfall is a pretty close second. Uh, and then you get Quantum of Solace, which is barely an hour and a half. So it's just um, kind of funny. But they they definitely veered more towards the longer length running time than the shorter. A couple of things that. Uh made made me chuckle uh there weren't too many eye rolling moments it's a pretty good movie which is you know it's amazing how much they you can do with like a, a really good script and good acting you know and good direction you don't need all the effects and the three-hour movie and, and everything else that we get today but uh there's a scene where i i guess it's quarrel and bond and honey and uh, they're in that port where they're hiding on the beach still. They haven't gotten to the lair yet. Right. And they, like, they all run and hide. And then Bond, like, jumps out again and, like, quick, quickly, like, kicks the sand, like, twice <laughs> to cover their tracks. Yeah, yeah. It was, like, really ridiculous. That was funny. And uh, the shackles that were holding Honey in the final, like, scene when he's oh, yeah. frantically looking for her to get her out of the place before it blows up and yeah. she's like she's shackled to the floor which is about <laughs> to get flooded and he like pops both of them with like one finger it, took, it, it takes like no, not even a second you know it's like were you really trying to get out of here honey or were you just <laughs> laying there on your back waiting yeah yeah so i thought i thought those were funny and it kind of i kind of laughed at the fact that he blows up like how many people did he kill oh god yeah <laughs> I know they were all evil, uh, you know, lab workers or whatever. But, yeah. Uh, setting off the nuke to stop their plan was ended up being kind of extreme. Yeah, yeah, causing a causing a reactor meltdown. Meltdown. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's funny too because uh, you know that's kind of how Doctor No kind of it wasn't this you know really uh, climactic uh, crazy 
fight scene. I mean, it was the two of them in this rickety cage that was slowly going down, and Bond just happened to get the better of them and hop off. Uh, and and Doctor No falls in in the in the water, which is you know obviously the cooling pond for the rods, um, which is is funny because back in 1962 nobody probably really thought about like radiation and like how all this stuff works. And you're watching this now, and you're just seeing these rods go down into this open pool and and come back out again, and you're just like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I I did like that uh, he couldn't hold on because his metal hands didn't right. have like a good grip. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was expecting him to have a cat. Did that? That's <laughs> was yeah. that parodied from a different movie? No, that no, we no. Will... Yeah, that's that's the Blofeld character. So the whole thing with the cat comes in. Ernst Stavro Blofeld ends up being like kind of this major recurring villain. And for a couple of movies, we never even see his face. We just kind of see his hands and he's got this cat. Um, but diamonds are forever is the big one with, with, uh, with Blofeld and the cat, because the cat has the big diamond uh, necklace around it and everything else. So that, that's that the whole um, parody of Austin powers with the cat really comes into play with, uh, with diamonds are forever. So interesting. But that's one of the things we find out in in this movie too is that uh, Doctor No is really just working for Spectre, which is kind of the 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 big terrorist organization that Bond ends up going up against. Blofeld leads or is you know is a key member in Spectre, and so that that'll show up repeatedly throughout you know the next several movies. Um, and even I, he even mentions Smirsh, and in the books. Uh, Bond went against an organization called Smirsh, which was like some kind of post-war Russian terrorist organization thing. Uh, and then in the books, they ended up flipping it over to Spectre, which is kind of a little bit more of a nebulous terrorist organization um, that that was going on. Yeah, it does make you wonder, you know, when you think about that and the radiation suits together, you know, it makes you wonder if Marvel didn't sort of use that. Yeah blueprint for yeah i I looked it up because i was curious as to when i couldn't remember the exact year i knew it was in the 60s but i didn't know exactly what year it was that aim first showed up and it was 66 so definitely after this so yeah i wouldn't be at all surprised if that wasn't uh kind of a key visual thing that they that they pulled from the whole bit with you kind of mentioned it earlier john but the whole bit with the beretta versus the the walther ppk which is kind of the the gun that he really that bond really becomes synonymous with and i i guess a lot of it stemmed from when fleming wrote the books he had bond carry a beretta like that just small beretta and i guess the guy one of the guys uh that was that they based the q character on he was like a military guy a weapons expert actually wrote fleming a letter and was like there's no way he'd carry that beretta it you know it it it's not, it's basically a crappy weapon and he would use something like this and so it was. It was basically fan mail feedback that got uh, Fleming to change it wow. from from the Beretta to the to the Walter. And I, I you know, again, they he made that switch in the books, um, but early on he did carry the Beretta. So I think that was a lot of why they kind of went on with that a little longer than they. Uh, I think that was maybe like a little bit of early fan service. You know, right. for, for people that read the books, they're like, oh yeah, that 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 makes sense. The other thing too, at the beginning of the movie we get really like a slow reveal of Bond. You know, the, the movie starts and we kind of get the, the murder and the, and the bit that's going on in Jamaica. 
And then we cut to the club and, you know, we kind of get the little walkthrough and we see Bond, you know, we see his hands and he's playing the cards. And it, and it really isn't until Sylvia Trench addresses him directly that we get the famous, you know, Bond, James Bond, which uh, is kind of funny. We have it at the actually at the beginning of the intro to, to the show where it's almost like he's making fun of Sylvia Trench because she says, you know, Trench, Sylvia Trench. And she's like, you know, I, I admire your courage, mister. And he goes, Bond, James Bond. So it was almost like he was kind of... Uh, yeah, mimicking her. Yeah, yep. yeah. But it just it just became one of those things that, that stuck. And it was just really cool. You know, he says, you know, Bond, and then he kind of, you know, lights up the cigarette, and, you know, it's just like, you know, super smooth Sean Connery. Yeah, it's funny how, uh, you know, you, you get a, I don't know, you get a sense maybe the way the characters evolved over the years, you know, you think, I don't know, you would think of like this like master gambler like he's probably got all the games mathematically figured out or he's looking at tells or facial tics or whatever and you see a lot of that in the new casino royale yeah uh but in this he's really just standing out of the way while she bets and <laughs> and loses you know he's yeah. just kind of he's just kind of flipping his cards and they're better than hers as she you know asks for more money like you know a bigger marker and she's betting she wants to up the ante you know he's just kind of going with the flow yeah. And it's they play I know in the early movies too. I guess Texas Hold'em has become kind of the famous poker game anymore, you know, the big, you know, tournament style poker game, but sure. most of these Bond movies in the early, especially the early ones when he's in a casino, it's usually baccarat, which is right. just kind of like a a derivative of of blackjack is the best way to kind of describe it. Yeah, I was actually trying to figure out what was happening you know, I, I know Baccarat, but I don't know the game, and it did seem very close to uh, like they were playing twenty-one of some kind. Yeah, yeah. So it's fine. Again, just kind of one of those things—a a kind of a sign of the times. Uh, you know, where where you know pop culture, and you know what's kind of in vogue now is kind of is kind of changed the uh, the character in the movies over time. But but back then, that was, I guess, the Texas Hold'em of its day. Right. And I, we, you know, we have we haven't really talked too much about Connery's Bond. Um, and again, I think you know conventional wisdom and most people kind of view Connery as the quintessential Bond. And I think a lot of it has to do with him being the first. Uh, you know, certainly, just like anything else, when you try and visualize somebody else in a role uh, that somebody's kind of taken and making their own, it, it's kind of hard to do that. But really. You know, I think because Connery was kind of a, a an unknown at this time, believe it or not. I mean, he he's kind of become retired from acting in recent year. But you know, ten years ago, if, if you just said Sean Connery, I mean, I don't think there'd be anybody on the planet, <laughs> more or less, that wouldn't know who he was. Right. Um, and at this time, he was basically an unknown. He appeared in several movies and and d done some British stuff. Um, but it was. I enjoy, I enjoy his work on Celebrity Jeopardy. <laughs> Indeed. I'll take the rapist for a thousand. <laughs> uh, but a lot of the credit for kind of molding Connery into the into the man into the Bond that we, you know, learn to know and love is credited to Terrence Young, the director, and that he. A lot of people. It's it's funny on the Doctor No, uh, Blu-ray. There's there's a whole, uh, like a like a mini biography episode on on Terrence Young, and they pretty much say he was James Bond. I mean. Just the, the way he acted and, and his mannerisms, and he was just a very high class, uh, you know, kind of a, you know, womanizing, not womanizing, but, you know, um, 
you know, friendly with the ladies. Just he kind of had that that uh, feel to him. And if you know, maybe if he was a little bit younger, he probably could have uh, gotten away with playing Bond himself. But he he really coached and worked with Connery a lot on refining the role and getting the mannerisms down and just the way that he moved and spoke and carried himself in that part. Yeah, it's it's very interesting too to see uh how it's evolved. You know, I, I love Daniel Craig in the role. Yeah. Um it's such more of a physical role now. You know, even the the short fight scenes that Connery is in, it's so simple and, and stiff even. I mean he doesn't yeah. look good doing it. But it wasn't something that was done then, you know? Right. Actors didn't train to fight. They they acted. So, you know, they threw a punch that didn't come close and there was a sound effect and the guy fell falls over a rail. You notice everybody he punches falls over a rail? <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, it's just different. It's it's like you're saying, it's all the way he carries himself. That's what this James Bond is. You know, and totally believable. Like, right? You totally get how he's oh, yeah. knocking out all these women and Yeah, I mean, you know. he's you know, tall, well-built, you know, kind of the dark, you know, kind of the tall, you know, the, the quintessential tall, dark, and handsome, I guess you, you could say. Right. Uh, um, and and I always, it's funny, I, I can't remember if I said this last episode or not, but, and I'll, I'll probably say this twice more before we're, uh, we're, we move on off of the Connery films, but I always view Connery's bond as more like a, like a blunt, like a club. Like he's a blunt instrument. And I think, Money Penny even even kind of makes mention of that in I think or not Money Penny M uh, Judy Dench's M I think even mentions that like in Casino Royale that like those days are over um, you know when he when Daniel Craig comes in but he's he's very much he's not about like finesse and he's not about you know he's he's just very blunt and to the point with with his women with his enemies you know with with just the way he carries them I mean he killed the living shit out of that spider. That was crawling yeah. on his, on his yes. shoulder. I mean, that thing, it was probably pulp by the time he was done yeah. with it. I love how they had the music yes. match up with him beating it with his shoe, too. Yeah. And apparently Connery was is, like, deathly afraid of spiders. So if you notice in that scene, when when they show the spider crawling up, like, his arm, it looks funny. Like, it, it looks almost like it's superimposed. They actually stood him, they... they flipped the set and the bed was actually up against the wall they put a plate a piece of plate glass between him and the spider <laughs> and they had the spider basically kind of crawling up uh because he would not he would he flat out refused to do anything with the spider he would not he would not have it touch him or be near him um and then in the scenes when they actually show the spider physically you could tell it's actually physically crawling up the side of his arm that, that's like a stunt double they had come in to do that bit wow yeah it's it's really funny. The scene comes off well. I mean, it's yeah. uh, there is a lot of tension there. Yeah, the sweat. Oh my god. Yeah. Absolutely. But it, even in the bit too, with the you know, we see it a little later with the doctor when when uh, Professor Dent. We know when they do the whole bit where he goes out to see Miss Tarot and she, you know, we find out she's double crossed him and you know they're you know her whole deal is to ambush him. And then, you know, they kind of cart her off and then Dent shows up and he thinks he's killed Bond in bed. 
and then they kind of have this little bit of an exchange, and then Dent goes to go for the gun, and Bond tells him, he's like, you've had your six, and then just shoots him in cold blood. I mean, that was like, apparently the censors, I mean, they really went through hell to get that scene included in that movie because there was a lot of blowback on the fact that, you know, well, he's just killing a man in cold blood, and it was, you know, very unheard of at the time. Yeah. Great scene, though. I oh, mean, yeah. L- luckily, luckily it made it. Again, you know, I guess the anti-hero was not a thing then. No, no, not at all. And and I guess the really the push with it was, well, the guy came in, he tried to kill him. He was about to try, you know, to kill him again. Uh, that, it, you know, they kind of kind of pulled the self-defense card with it. Uh, but it kind of wasn't, it kind of wasn't. I mean, the, you know, there's no question Bond could have easily just walked up to him and just, like, kicked the crap out of him and, uh, you know, been done with it. But... Uh, I think they were they were trying to show a little bit of a harder edge to that character. Just, I guess a little bit on the box office side, we we talked about uh, the budget was about a million bucks for this one, and it looks like year to date gross is about sixteen million, which not a bad return on the investment. Um, you know, for for a movie to make sixteen times what it cost, and I mean, even if you factor in it cost them a million dollars to market it, which probably in nineteen sixty two that wasn't the case. Um, you know, a pretty nice return, and it pretty much set everything up moving forward for them to make, you know, 22 more of these these movies and for it to just continue on for 50 years, so. Yeah, and eventually, you know, it just, it, it has that built-in fan base, you know. Yeah. Like, I don't know, like the Friday the 13th movies or, you know, Fast and the Furious even, you know, like yeah. the, the, base, the base fans are always going to go out and see it, and that's enough to... Keep it rolling. Yeah, and I mean, not to get too far off Dr. No, but I mean, Skyfall earned over a billion dollars worldwide. I mean, it was pretty unheard of for me at the time. Like, I think everybody thought it would be a a fairly big hit because the previous two had been big hits. But for whatever reason, Skyfall just like hit on all the right cylinders and and just really took off. So it's, it's amazing that 50 years later, not only can a movie franchise be still invigorating and still you know worthy of going to seeing but really kind of renewed and reinvigorated and you know blowing away the box office at the same time i don't know if in 20 years we'll be saying that about you know even like star trek or star wars or anything like that right right although star trek is coming up on 52 so i guess we'll see so do we want to cut to our uh to our voting segments? Yeah, sounds good. Been looking forward to this. Yeah, so one of the things that John and I wanted to do with this podcast was to not just make this a typical HHW LED podcast where we talk about a lot of little minute detail and and talk about you know the movies itself and stuff like that. We want to kind of add a little bit of fun to it. Uh, and like we said at the beginning, kind of figure out like quintessentially when you when you boil a Bond movie down to its its elements, like what makes the best bond movie like how do we how do we figure that out um and so neither one of us are mathematical or scientific geniuses so uh we just kind of picked a bunch of categories that seemed like they made sense uh added some little extras that would give each movie a bonus either in the positive or the negative and uh and go from there and so the way we will do this is there are five main categories that we've we've come up with so there's um, there's the babes, so so all the Bond girls, we'll, we'll rate those. The gadgets and the cars, the villains, 
the music and kind of the opening credit scenes and then kind of the story overall. And then uh, as, as these elements come up, uh, there'll be bonuses given based on various factors uh, that the movie attains or does not attain. Um, and each one of the uh, each one of us are going to score these out of ten. So when we total it up, like conceivably the the best Bond movie would would if we gave everything tens across the board, both of us, it would add up to a hundred, and then bonus points would come into factor at all. So by the end of it, hopefully we'll have something that uh, a list that we can we can put out that shows what we think um, are the best Bond movies in order. All right. So the first category we have listed as babes, which is probably not very politically correct, but uh, it is a Bond movie, so uh, there's going to be uh, probably some uh, political correctness out the window when it comes to uh, Bond and the treatment of the female species. Yeah, yeah, it gets rough uh, <laughs> as sort of a pun and uh, and otherwise. Um, I, I guess I'll start. I thought the babes were very strong in this movie. Uh, again, er- Ursula Andrus, you know, as Honey, is, is spectacular. I did enjoy Miss Taro as well, even though she had funny Chinese uh, makeup and she wasn't really Chinese. And, you know, even uh, Sylvia Trench is a looker. So I went with an eight just because I want to leave a little ceiling for... I, I'm sure down the road there's I know in the Roger Moore movies like in some of them it's just eye candy the whole way. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm gonna go with an eight for the babes. I went a little bit higher than you. I I gave it a nine, um, and and a lot of it is I just think it had you know the three main women players. Uh, I I won't really count Money Penny in this. I mean Money Penny's not an unattractive woman, but I just never really kind of see money penny as as a bond girl quote unquote but yeah but ursula andrus i mean the quintessential bond woman i mean the you know when people say bond woman that they think of the white bikini and her coming out of the water i mean that's like the image ingrained in most people's brains um and i, I just thought eunice gason is just an absolute complete utter knockout i mean i just thought she was incredibly beautiful um and just those the scenes you know with her with the shirt uh, and and they even went low with it, which was was really interesting. You know, they they put the camera on the floor and kind of went up. So she's wearing this, you know, short men's dress shirt, um, and obviously nothing else. Um, again, pretty risque for the for the time period. I mean, obviously nowadays, you know, she'd probably be standing there naked. But, um, but again, for the time, pretty pretty, uh, pretty risque. Um, and Zena Marshall as Miss Tarot was, I thought, just incredible too. I mean, the scenes with her. Uh, in the room, so uh, a definite, definite thumbs up for me. So, so I, I rate it as a nine. Very good, a success. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so the next topic we, or the next uh, category, is gadgets and cars. Unfortunately, like we talked about earlier, I think this just has the the. Un, I think this just has the detriment of being the first. Uh, so other than just kind of typical cars of the day i think that you know we see a couple thunderbirds and you know there's a couple you know what we consider you know classic cars of the era um of that time and then as far as gadgets i mean we get you know kind of like a geiger counter and you know a a radio console and stuff like that so you know the the, i guess maybe the walther ppk because it was kind of this very small um you know powerful pistol that he carried you know it wasn't like some huge gun that that he toted around 
Um, and then he had the, the luminescent watch, but, you know, very much, you know, we're not looking at, you know, the Aston Martin that has the missiles and the smoke and the oil and <laughs> the ejector right. seat and the, you know, the, the Lotus Esprit that goes under the water and turns into a submarine. Um, but again, I think, unfortunately, this, this will just, this movie will just suffer from being the first and just being, um, saddled with the budget that it was. Yeah. And I went with the three. You know, like you said, it could easily have been, it could easily be a one or a two or, or a zero even, because there really are, I mean, yeah, there are cars in this movie, but uh, nothing special, definitely. No gadgets, so to speak. It, it didn't even seem like that's the, they just weren't going for that angle yet. It may, right. again, I'm not sure, um, it may take a couple of movies before they really start introducing, you know, Q and the uh, and the gadgets and stuff. But I went with the three because I figure no gadgets might be better than some of the gadgets we're going to get. Uh, That's a good point. So I didn't want to go one, two, or zero. I'm going to leave that for the really crappy gadgets of the early 80s movies or, or around that area. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I mean, the the number doesn't have to be just based on the sheer volume, but the quality and yeah, there are times when it got really silly, <laughs> um, to, for sure. Uh, so the next category is the villain. So obviously the villain in this movie is Dr. No. I guess you could probably make an argument that uh, that, Taro, uh, that Ms. Taro was kind of a villain as well. But uh, but typically with these movies, there's always the one mastermind, the one villain that, that is kind of the, the main one. And, I, and that's really what we're going for. Um, yeah, and I, I, I do I like Doctor No. I like the way they introduced Doctor No. I like the uh metal hands. I thought that was a nice touch. Um I like the stupid plan. I liked his henchmen, buckethead, radioactive workers. <laughs> and I actually I like the three blind mice. Yeah. yeah because yeah. I thought yeah. it was a total and we're gonna get to the opening in a little bit. But I thought it was just a total swerve opening. Like, what's yeah. going on here with these three blind men while they're playing three blind mice? Yeah. And, uh, you know, they're assassins or whatever. Uh, so I thought that was cool. So I went with an eight for the villains. Uh, I went with seven. Uh, and again, I, I don't really have too much to detract from what you're saying. Uh, I, I think maybe because we didn't get a ton of Dr. No, which... Again, in retrospect, maybe a good thing, uh, you know, because because sometimes just having somebody in there a lot doesn't necessarily make it good. Um, but again, solid performance, um, you know, solid villain. We're kind of you know, it sets up the world very nicely that the that and sets the tone that these movies are going to have some crazy person that is going to be in control of everything, like the main villain, um, and that's kind of how things are set forward. So uh, I, I think they they had a good start. I. I this is a category too that definitely wavers greatly. I think as we get into the the 80s um, and even into the early 90s, I think some of these get really really bad, um, but others get very very good. So um, we will see good movies with crappy villains. We will see crappy movies with good villains. Yeah. Um, so the next category is the music and the opening credit scene. Um, I gave this one a three which was really kind of hurts. Um, and a lot of it is just based on what we know uh, is, is coming down the pipe. I mean, you know, th this one really didn't do the, the crazy naked women silhouettes and 
the, the song doesn't really tie to the title, um, but we do get, you know, the first rendition of the uh, of the James Bond theme, which is, you know, phenomenal and just, again, one of those iconic pieces of movie music that everybody knows like the back of their hand. Um, but again, it, it just it just kind of had like more of an animated feel and it just kind of um, it, it, it just definitely didn't feel like what what I what I typically think of as a Bond movie. Yeah, I think the word that comes to mind when I was watching this opening is uh, dated. Yeah, exactly. It, it's very, very 60s. You got the polka dots and, like, the uh, neon, like, go-go dancer silhouettes. And, you know, it, I, it just felt like an epileptic seizure was coming on or something. It's very, <laughs> it's, like, very jarring. And then it kind of slides right into the Calypso, Three Blind Mice. Yes. And uh, it was all just sort of like out of place. And and even, you know, there. this is the beginnings of like graphic effects, you know, in movies sure. and stuff. And even that circle around the Bond who shoots the bullet and then like the cheesy blood drips over the circle. And yeah. it's sort of like dances back and forth for no reason for <laughs> for a second or two there. So I went with the four. You know, I, I did I did like where it went with the three blonde mice, but I didn't like how it got there. And no cold yeah. open again, you right. know. So I'll give it a four. I'm, sh- I'm sure there are some worse ones, but, you know, this one wasn't great. Right. Uh, so the last actual category before we get to some of the bonus stuff that we've, uh, we've had some fun with is the story. Uh, and I gave this one an eight. I, I thought it was very... You know, kind of like you mentioned, John, very tight, very straightforward. Um, Whether you like the gimmick of what the villain was trying to do, this movie was very easy to understand, very easy to follow what was what was going on um, and and nothing really complicated. So, again, just kind of like short, sweet, to the point, sets the world up. Um, You kind of understand, you know, how things are going to work moving forward. And uh, and I, I very pleased with it just from a, you know, script and story standpoint. Yeah, I'm right with you. I gave it an 8 as well. Um, All the reasons that you just mentioned. And again, I really love the way they filled in the background of Bond, whether it be his trouble on past missions, his choice of a weapon, his relationship, or, you know, maybe past with Money Penny. Um, It all just worked really well to fill us in without doing a full origin story. So, 8 also. Excellent. So now we'll get into some extra credit, some bonuses. Um, and so the first one, and this is just something I thought would be funny uh, to play around with. We've actually given a bonus bonus points depending on who plays Bond. And, and a lot of it just comes from the fun with I am not a huge fan of Roger Moore. I was never really a fan of Roger Moore. Um, so I, th- I think when I rate my Bonds, uh, Roger Moore, for me at least, is always uh, at the bottom of the heap. So I thought it would just be kind of funny, like, again, we said, Sean Connery is always considered kind of like the quintessential Bond. Uh, So we're going to give two points if Connery plays Bond. We'll give one point if uh, Daniel Craig plays Bond. We'll give uh, a negative one if if Roger Moore plays Bond. Um, And actually, I I take that back. George Lazenby played Bond once, and so he's the negative two um, because he really was not a good Bond. 
Um, and, and there were a lot of uh, behind-the-scenes shenanigans going on when he, he played Bond that we'll get to when we talk about Our Majesty's Secret Service. Um, so he gets a minus two. And then I thought for, uh, like, I was really happy with Pierce Brosnan and um, Timothy Dalton. So they're kind of like the, the like level playing field. So there's no bonus, um, a positive or negative, on either one of those guys uh, playing. So this so this would be fun. So so there's two. So that that goes for the bond the bond bonus. But then there's other bonuses, and I think some of these we're not going to kind of uh, show all our cards as it were at one point. Um, so as these things evolve and and they are pertinent to the movie, uh, we'll we'll talk about them. Um, and so we'll do we'll do a little back and forth. So one of the things we'll have bonus points is for every time Bond is seen with a drink, like where he orders one or somebody hands him a drink or whatever, we'll give a bonus point because part of what I think about in a good Bond movie is you know whether he orders his martini or he's you know at a bar or you know whatever or at the at the the gaming table and has a drink or whatever. So. So, John, how many drinks would you say Mr. Mr. Connery had in Dr. No? I'm going to guess. Uh, I don't think it's it's a very large number. I'm sure we will have movies with more drinking. Yes. Um, I know he ordered. He got one brought to him to his room in Jamaica. I'm going to guess there was one in the casino. I think maybe he had one in the lake. I'm going to I'll go with four. I counted two. Wow. There were a couple times where, like, a drink was brought out and he never touched it. Like, he just it just kind of was there and he and he walked away. But there were two actual times where he he was seen actively drinking. And I'm not talking like he has a drink and then he pours more and and drinks it again. But but you know just just actual you know separate drinks. So there's two. Right. Interesting. So the next one will be fun. <laughs> How many women did Bond bed in this movie? Well, this is easy. Uh, <laughs> he he betted three, and he betted Miss Taro twice at least. Yes. Did he bet Honey twice? No, I think he only bet Honey once. Just at the very end, we kind of get when he cuts the boat, when he loosens the the rope on the boat, and uh, and the CIA and the Coast Guard kind of take off. Right. Um, that's where it's kind of implied. I think before that, they were just kind of like stuck in the boat. There wasn't any implied uh, hanky-panky. Right. And, and of course, he, he starts off with uh, Sylvia. So I'm going to say Sylvia, Honey, and Miss, Miss Taro twice. So four. Very good. That is yep. four. Yes, I have a keen eye for that. Sort of thing. <laughs> um, so hopefully you, you all will uh, see this in the spirit it was intended, which is uh, to kind of play a little fun with, with the franchise. Um, so Dr. No gets a total bonus of six points, uh, for the shenanigans and the, uh, and the, and the drinking. And like I said, there's a couple other, uh, bonus categories that we have that didn't apply to this one that I think will be fun to roll out as they happen. Um, sometimes it's not always on the positive. Sometimes there are some negatives. So we'll, we'll, we'll see that. Um, and again, like we said, Connery gets two points for just being Sean Connery. So that totals out Dr. No, again, based on the point, on the uh, completely unscientific point system that John and I have uh, devised, uh, to 68 points, technically out of 100. I mean, yeah, there's bonus points in there, but I, I, I doubt it we'll see any movie that, that probably breaks the 100 threshold. But, uh, but a, a pretty solid start for the first one. Like I said, 68 out of 100. Yeah, I think, like we said, it, it's going to suffer a little bit in the gadget and cars. 
uh, and the opening credits and music areas. That's going to hurt it overall, but I'm sure it will be upper third by the end. I don't see, you know, a lot of the movies that have good credits and gadgets are not going to have a, you know, a strong of a story score. So I, I expect this to be probably in the upper quarter at the end. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I can I can easily see that. And and again, if not, it doesn't make it a bad movie. It just doesn't make it like I said, this is this is kind of us trying to take a stab at what makes a Bond movie. When you tell somebody, hey, I watched a Bond movie, you know, what's kind of, you know, circling around in their head. So it doesn't mean it's not a good movie. Um by obviously by the story that we gave it, you know, kind of we both gave it eight, so obviously we thought the movie itself was pretty solid. Um, but it's just all the stuff attached to it. Right. Yeah, 68 is nothing to be ashamed of. No, sir. So do you have anything else, or does that bring us to the end of, of this episode? No, I, that pretty much covers it. I mean, I had a good time uh, talking about this movie, and I look forward to From Russia With Love, which uh, if we get this out semi-reasonably soon, we should have From Russia With Love out sometime in February. Yeah, I would think so. Probably the latter latter part of February, but yeah, yeah, it'll be good because I think that's where we see things kind of starting some of these you know typical trends that that we talk about uh, for sure. And then by the time we get to Goldfinger, you know, the franchise is well on its way to being what it is. So, yeah, I think this is de- this is definitely going to get more fun as as time goes by. Excellent. All right, if you would like to leave us a message, a voicemail message about the podcast, you can call 972-798-3830. That's the HHWLOD Podcast Network voicemail line. Uh, just let the voicemail know that you're sending the message for Shaken Not Stirred and, and specifically Dr. No, and we'll be happy to play and discuss that on a future episode. That would be fun. Um, but other than that, just check out the Facebook group, um, facebook.com slash HHWLOD. Uh, for all of the stuff that we have going on the network, including this show, Shaken Not Stirred. Um, but like I said, for the most part, this is going to be a fairly low-key podcast. This is mainly just kind of John and I watching each movie and kicking some stuff around. So um, not your typical heavy media blitz uh, on this one. No. A nice break. Yes, yes. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, everybody, again, thanks for listening, and we will see you next month with From Russia with Love. <laughs>